In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool too. With an ice cold cold brew, and not just any cold brew, but one that's slow steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. Welcome to America, the land of junk sleep, where it's bedtime, but you're double booked. Here, there's always one more deadline to meet, episode to watch, or meme to share. The world may not want you to sleep, but we do. Only the sleep experts at Mattress Firm can help you find the right bed at the right price. Unjunk your sleep. In-store or online at mattressfirm.com today. Hello there, welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. First things first, I want to say thank you for everybody who has come over to the other podcast, Absolute Poppycock, to support us um, and to join me and Lee on our, our second adventure with podcasting. So thank you to, to the listeners who have come across. For those of you who haven't uh, and are interested in something a little bit more uh, upbeat um, and a little bit more informal uh, than your original programmed schedule uh, with This Week in History, then come join us on Absolute Poppycock. Uh, but we'll get back to our history for this uh, for this episode. Firstly, I do want to have a, a bit of an apology to you guys that this episode is coming to you uh, a bit late this week. Main reason for that, I have been off work for a week. I've had a week off work. Uh, spending time with the family and the kids and haven't really found time to to do it added to that my wife decided to give me a little nudge last week um onto onto the bed with a with a shoulder um and I managed to pop the ligament out on my knee so uh, I'm struggling to walk at the moment which is really fun um and it does mean sitting down for long periods of time to record has not been very easy. So obviously I have been struggling a little bit with that as well. So for those of you who are interested, or for those of you who are on my Facebook and, and have noticed that uh, so, uh, that uh, I have been a bit injured over the last week, we're going to carry on with our Civil War stories. Uh, obviously we know the outcome of the English Civil War now. We know that Parliament have won. We know that they have removed the King... We don't know where Parliament is going forwards. Now, this is the problem with the English Civil War is you had, although Parliament had a group of people who wanted more control, Parliament was very, very divided in what they wanted to do with the King. Now, a lot of people in Parliament were more than happy uh, to keep King Charles I on the throne and they were not allowed to be present 
at the vote. So for those of you who listened to the last episode, you will know that King Charles was executed for treason against his own crown, which is, you know, impossible. But come 1649, after the execution of uh, King Charles, it left England in a very unstable and a very poisonous position, really, as a country. They didn't really know what to do. We'd never been in a position without a figurehead, without a head of state. We knew that Parliament could do the job, but we didn't have anyone in a position in Parliament to take control. And up steps the soldier, uh, the man in charge, or or one of the men in charge of the army, uh, Oliver Cromwell. Uh, He was voted into the position of Lord Protector, and he was put in charge of, basically, England. Now, uh, on more than one occasion, which we will cover, uh, he was actually offered the crown, uh, to which he refused, because obviously it would be a bit pointless, uh, as soon as he fought against having a crown, to to then take the crown would be a little bit hypocritical. So, um, he actually was offered that. But we, I said, we'll talk about that a little bit further as we go. Oliver Cromwell is a very interesting character in history. He... He fought for what he believed was right, um, and it wasn't necessarily backed by the majority of people. However, for the few years that he was in his position of power, he was the top dog. He was the one in charge, and he was the one that, you know, called the shots, really. And it's a it's a very interesting time. Um, he's a very int- like I said, he is a very very interesting character, and we will cover post Civil War uh, England, and obviously under the rule of Oliver Cromwell. Now, for those of you who don't know very much about Oliver Cromwell, he was born uh, in April uh, fifteen ninety nine, and he died September sixteen fifty eight. So pretty decent life lifespan for someone in those uh, the, that era and he was actually buried in the palace of whitehall uh, in london so he was given a i would say a royal burial um uh, yeah i suppose it would be the equivalent of a royal burial uh, of those time obviously he was a statesman he was um a a member of parliament uh, lord protector of england and when he died his son actually carried on richard cromwell carried on the legacy of the cromwells but let's go back to the end of the civil war and we shall talk about the transition from king to parliament parliament was in desperate need of somebody to take over who would benefit the army and also benefit the country and try and sort of smooth out a lot of the problems England was having. When you got to remember at this time, still a lot of people were royal, you know, royal supporters and weren't overly happy with the decision made to kill the king. So somebody needed to come in who was going to benefit both sides. Oliver Cromwell was the man who fit the bill. He was asked to take a position in Parliament that would give him a lot of control. Uh, and this basically meant that 
he had control over the army and the army was the main influence in England after the king had died so with the army being in control it meant that at least for the time being there could be a little bit of peace and stability in the country Oliver Cromwell a normal man from a decent background has now risen to one of the most powerful positions in the country purely based upon his merit and his record as a cavalry officer and in charge of certain divisions in the army during the English Civil War. So he's now done very well for himself and he is, like we spoke in the last couple of episodes, a Puritan. As a Puritan he has certain ideas of what he wants England to be and he's now one step closer to achieving those. Essentially, he wants England to be its own Mecca, or its own Jerusalem, where everybody is free to worship in their own right, in their own way, in their own right, except for the Catholics. Now, he has a huge dislike for the Catholics, and this doesn't change. Now, this is very important to know, is, is his hatred for the Papists, and how he expresses that later in in his his um his service now cromwell has these two sides to him he has this very nice i want england to be lovely and fresh and free from civil war and you know he has this very nice friendly side to him and he also has this really violent and radical side where if you do not serve God in the way that he believes you should serve God, then your head was on a block or it was around a noose. So he he had this very radical side to him as well, um, not very tolerant to, to other groups. Oliver Cromwell is now looking at threats to his idea or his ideal England. One of the main threats comes from his own army, um, just in general, the uh, the people who are who aren't happy with certain factions in the army, um, different groups. A lot of people who joined Cromwell's army um, came across from the royalist sides, um, you know, purely because they needed a job. Is his army was a bit dysfunctional? It wasn't necessarily um, wasn't necessarily all marching to the same tune. So he he did fear. A bit of dysfunction in his own army. Uh, worse than that, he still feared the Scots. Uh, the Scots had obviously proved extremely capable uh, in the Civil War, um, for especially well, mainly for him, really. Um, but again, they they flitted back to the Royalist side towards the Second Civil War, um, and this is a headache for for Cromwell because he knows. There is an army north of the border that potentially could rise up and, and go against him. And even more worrying for Cromwell and England is the little island just to the west of us called Ireland. Um, now, the Irish rebellion in 1641 was never really quelled by the English. They, they, they attempted to to put down the rebellion um, and failed they really didn't do what they needed to do because of the civil war starting uh, the following year they they didn't really they basically they let the irish 
go back to being Irish and, you know, being Catholic and not really worrying about them. Um, so realistically for the, the civil war period, it was probably the most peaceful time in Ireland for the Irish, the Irish Republic. Unfortunately, um, Cromwell couldn't have that. He couldn't have an island so close to us being Catholic. Um, and this is why he was sent over to Ireland to quell that rebellion that started in 1641 and replace English dominance in Ireland. Cromwell was appointed Lord General of the Parliamentary Forces in Ireland and was sent over to carry out the task of putting Protestant, Protest, bloody, I'll try saying that when you're drunk, Protest, Protestantism, Protestantism, ahead of Catholicism in Ireland. Sorry about the speech in that one. Cromwell's reputation in Ireland set him apart um, and pretty much put him on the map as, I suppose, an English hero, an Irish devil, um, whatever way you want to look at it. Um, the Irish hated, hated Cromwell. Um, a lot of English at this time saw him as, as a bit of a hero. Um, he, he gained a reputation, let's put it that way. And in September 1649, his forces met the Irish forces at Drogheda. Cromwell sent a wave of men at the town of Drogheda, um, and they were repelled. He then sent a second wave, and they were also repelled. Um, by this point, Cromwell had lost his patience, and he actually led the third attack himself, um, to which the lines of the town were broken, and Cromwell entered. Now, the main bulk of the rebel rebellion in Drogheda fled um Cromwell was very brutal after the victory um he made a point of saying that any man left in the town who wielded a weapon was to be put to the sword now the reports from Cromwell and his army suggest that they killed around 2000 people after the battle who were still um, who'd still taken up arms or still in possession of arms and could fight back. So they, they did kill around 2,000 people after the battle, which is where he sort of lost a lot of respect for, well, from everyone in, in, in regards to that. Now, this blot on Cromwell's military record and the slaughter of two and a, two to two and a half thousand men after a battle might seem a little bit bad, um, a little bit against what we would now class as um, fair warfare. Now, obviously, nowadays, if you took that many prisoners, you probably wouldn't, you wouldn't be allowed under international law to to kill those prisoners. This was a different time. And it's very important to put yourself into a perspective here. Now, Cromwell is very important in Irish history and the rebellions at Drogheda and Wexford they still talk about 
Um, and they talk about Cromwell with a massive, massive hatred. Um, I actually went to, um, a castle just outside of Tipperary a few years ago. Um, beautiful castle and it still has cannonballs in the side of the castle in the walls from Cromwell's siege of the castle. Um, but the, the guy who, who was there actually said that Cromwell got such a reputation in Ireland because of this massacre that when he approached a city people would give up they would just put the white flag up straight away to avoid the amount of bloodshed that was going to happen this gave the English a really bad reputation of just being brutal murderers um, and would you know kill everyone it is important to remember that they didn't kill women and children. It was just men who fought against them. And it wasn't uncommon in that type of warfare to do that. So nowadays we look at that as wrong. And if you're on the losing side, of course you're going to see that as wrong as well. Now, it's very hard to put yourself in that situation. And I would never try and try and sympathize with Cromwell because I actually think there's a reason this is a black mark on his his on his history um it's not uh not a high point for him um and it's I, I don't think it would be very easy to defend it as a high point so I do think he did do the wrong thing um but I do also think it's important to remember that it was not uncommon at this time in history however Cromwell's reputation in Ireland was stained forever, regardless of whether you see it as uh, something that happened or whether you see it as the tragedy that it's it's played out. Um, so yeah, bit of a bit of a difficult one that, but he uh, he definitely left a, a lasting memory on Ireland. And if you talk to the Irish even now they still will give you an opinion on Oliver Cromwell. So, Cromwell has had a success, as far as the English are concerned, in Ireland. He has put down the rebellion, and he is now moving on to the next biggest threat in his uh, his country, and that is the Protestant Scottish Royalists. You might be wondering, why is Scotland such a threat? Well, Remember back to the first episode where Scotland joined with the parliamentary forces at the start of the Civil War under the pretense that the Scottish Presbyterian Church would be the Church of England as well. This promise was obviously not kept and that's why the Scots then decided to side with the King in the second half of the English Civil War. So the Scots don't trust the English and they were absolutely outraged at the execution of Charles I. This is not something that Scotland actually agreed with. Now, what the Scots did after that is probably one of the biggest reasons why Scotland and England had this massive issue in 1649. As soon as Charles I was executed... The Scots crowned King Charles's son, 
as King Charles II of Scotland and of England. Now, obviously, Scotland and England at this time are two separate nations, and one country cannot crown the king of another country. All right? So when Charles I was crowned in England, he was also crowned separately in Scotland. When James I was crowned in England, he was already James VI of Scotland, so he had to be crowned twice. They were separate countries, separate coronations. England could not, uh, Scotland, sorry, could not crown an English king. Certainly, they couldn't crown an English king when they just, when England had just executed the previous king. It was, uh, not a very good decision by the Scots to do that and certainly one that riled up the English support added to this the only way Charles II could take the throne of Scotland was if he accepted Presbyterianism as the outright religion so again another reason why the English needed to well not needed to but decided to invade Scotland now this wasn't a open and shut case for the English. There were a lot of parliamentarians who didn't agree with the invasion of Scotland. Um, Thomas Fairfax is probably the most famous one. Said that he doesn't want to go to war with his, his allies, basically. You've got to remember Scotland were allies with England. And a lot of people didn't want to break that alliance. Not only that, they didn't really want to fight the Scots they you, the Scots at this time were better <laughs> there's no denying it um the Scots were better fighters they had proven themselves um many many times against the English and really this wasn't a battle that anyone really wanted to go into not only that in the 1600s everything had to be justified by God so they could justify attacking Ireland because Ireland was Catholic and Catholic was evil according to Protestants. But Scotland was Protestant. They couldn't justify it in the name of God and a lot of people had a problem with that. So it didn't really matter because they st- England still invaded and Cromwell's army went into Scotland and tried to draw out the Scottish army. They chased them all around Scotland and then retired at a town called Dunbar, which is on the border of Scotland and England, just to find themselves surrounded by the Scottish commander David Leslie and his army. So... The English had worn themselves out by marching through Scotland with no opposition, retired to a place where they are surrounded now by the Scots, who are not tired and exhausted. Scotland was in a position of strength uh, before the battle, and were very easily able to starve the English out. Unfortunately, the ministers in Scotland wanted a quick resolution and forced them into a battle. Uh, This battle ended very, very badly for the Scots. Um, They were well and truly defeated by Cromwell. 
um, they lost, I think it was 3,000 men on the battlefield and 10,000 men were taken prisoner. Um, they really, really got annihilated by Cromwell. And this is just another feather in Cromwell's cap. Cromwell and his army pushed on to take the capital of Scotland in Edinburgh, which is on the east coast or the east side of Scotland. Whilst this was going on, King Charles II took control of the Scots army that was left and marched into England. Now he marched from down the west side, down Glasgow and into the west side of England um, and into the West Midlands. He marched them down expecting a lot of support. What they were hoping for was the English royalists to rally behind King Charles and to replace him on the throne of England with a bit of support. Obviously, rather than just being put there, he would actually have the support of the English royalists. This did not happen. He did not get the support that he believed he was going to get when he marched down. Now, this could be for two reasons. This can either be because England, in the space of the execution in 1649 to the summer of 1651, had decided that they didn't want anything to do with the royalists or anything to do with the royal family or the Stuarts, or it could be the fact that the new model army, run by Oliver Cromwell, had such a good reputation of winning battles that they didn't believe even attempting to join was a good idea. Um, So we will never know. Uh, I think it's more likely to be the second though, don't you? Charles makes it all the way down to the town of Worcester, which I'm sure many of you remember from the last couple of episodes. Unfortunately for Charles, he is being chased, and he is being chased by Oliver Cromwell and his parliamentary forces. Now, when Charles gets to Worcester, he has around 12,000 royalists with him, and he's being chased by an army with around thirty to 35,000 men. So much bigger. Um, he's not going to win this battle. It's not going to happen. Cromwell gets to Worcester and absolutely wipes the floor with the Scottish army for the second time this year. Not only does he do that, Charles is in a position where he has to flee. Charles, if they killed Charles at the battle, we'd have a very, very different style of history to what we have. But that didn't happen. Charles knew he was losing the battle, and he fled. He fled down the West Midlands, down to the coast, and over to the continent. So back to the man we're talking about, Oliver Cromwell. He has proven himself as a very, very capable military leader. He has won pretty much every battle he's come up against. He's done an extremely good job, and is now probably one of the most famous men in the country. People love him in England. He is very, very popular. Unfortunately, he is not very high up in Parliament. He is just a member of the army. Very high member of the army, but the army nonetheless. And there are plans to extend the 
his power and the army's power in parliament so they have to vote same as they do for everything in this country and uh, most democratic countries in the world everything comes down to a vote now parliament in the late 16 late 1650s so 1651 52 is what we called the rump parliament so for those of you who remember back to charles the first and you'll remember back to the long parliament when he recalled parliament in 1641 when he recalled parliament these men that is called the rump parliament are the men who actually managed to survive that parliament okay so if that makes sense to anybody i'll try and make that a little bit simpler because it didn't really make sense in my head um basically when charles I had parliament there were x amount of men on the benches when his parliament dissolved there were only 60 men that managed to come back into parliament at a later date those 60 men were the rump parliament so out of the maybe 300 seats roughly only 60 of those managed to get back into parliament so parliament really needed a reshuffle it needed a shake-up it needed something new something different and cromwell believed that he was the man to do that so the request was made that parliament reshuffled that they did something new to parliament to to allow people to you know to change what was going on you know, england was stuck in a bit of a rut at this time and nothing happened you know the parliament dragged its heels and dragged its heels to the point that oliver cromwell lost his patience and in april 1653 oliver cromwell placed 30 of his best soldiers and placed them in the lobby of parliament now he did this because there was a bill that had been produced for parliament to read that would relieve oliver cromwell of his command of the army so what cromwell did was he sat there in parliament in complete silence whilst they read out the bill and what was uh, what 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 they wanted to happen and just as the speaker rose to basically to say yay or nay um, and is this going to go through Oliver Cromwell rose to his feet and broke his silence. He basically chastised Parliament, telling them that they'd not done anything for the good of the people, they'd not done anything to help anybody but themselves, and they were no longer a Parliament that was worthy of calling themselves a Parliament. And he basically called in his his musketeers and ushered these men who were part of the rump parliament apart from the part of the original 60 ushered them out of the court or out of the courtroom and basically said see you later <laughs> you're not to do with parliament anymore and if you try and come back in we're gonna shoot you um he then basically took over parliament himself with it with his with his with his men once the rump parliament had been removed he had to put his own parliament in place um this was an elected parliament uh, which was known as the small parliament or the short stop parliament 
Um, they were supposed to be in power for a couple of years um, until England was in such a position that it could go back to normal parliaments that were voted for by the people. Obviously, they didn't last that long. Now, they didn't last that long because the people he put into these positions, although were supposed to be there for the army's best interest, uh, you know, let's remember Cromwell, although was a politician, um, was the main the main man in the army. He was the, the general in charge of the army, and he wanted Parliament to make decisions for the army that would benefit the army. Now, this didn't happen because the people he'd put into place were, they were, well, they, were, they had different political opinions. You know, rather than getting people who were all from the same background, all with the same idea moving forwards, he put different people into positions that had contrasting views with others. So, some were more extreme, some were more conservative, um, all to the point where Cromwell really didn't have much choice but to step in as Lord Protector. Now, he this is when he was first offered the Crown of England. He was offered to become King of England, um, which he refused. And he took the title of Lord Protector. Now, this meant that he was essentially the King, but without the Crown. He was in charge of Parliament, he was in charge of the army, he was in charge of everything that the country needed to progress. Essentially, what we would say as a modern-day dictator, basically, is the, the best way of putting it. Now, you may wonder why Cromwell refused the crown. Like I said, a lot of people, a lot of historians believe he refused it because, potentially... Like I said, it makes him a bit of a hypocrite um, and it shows a lot of personal ambition that he probably didn't intend on showing. There's other ske- uh, speculation um, that suggests that he he was doing it because he was a religious man and he believed that by putting himself in position of king would mean that he was going against God's will um, and therefore wouldn't necessarily mean it was legitimized also you got to remember that not everybody wanted him as king you know a lot of people had fought years in the civil war to remove royalty so for them to then just put another royal in place um didn't really didn't really fit very well with with him so there was a lot of a lot of reasons why he didn't take it and it's not like he flat out refused it apparently it took him roughly two weeks to make a decision as to whether he wanted to be king or not so it wasn't a snap decision he literally had to spend his time thinking about what he wanted to do before he made that final decision of rejecting the crown Cromwell was to sit as Lord Protector for roughly a year and a half until they could have another election so in 1653 this was the first time in english history that we have had a written constitution this was the first time that any laws were put down or any constitution was put down on paper to lay out the laws of of the land and what the lord protector 
was supposed to do whilst he was in charge. Now, this lasted up until 1659, and for those five and a half years, was the only time in our history where we have had a written constitution in England. Cromwell kept his promise, and in 16, uh, 1655, elections were held for a new parliament. This parliament came in, and Cromwell used his power that he had as Lord Protector to dissolve that parliament and to carry on ruling on his own. So he had pretty much unlimited power. He was in a position where he gave people back the ability to vote in a parliament. He They voted in the parliament. He couldn't work with them. So he used his executive powers to remove that parliament. And this is where we can see when I said he was a dictator. Um, you don't necessarily have to be a negative dictator. Uh, not everything you have to do or can do as a, as a dictator is negative. Um, this is just proof that he was quite a power hungry person and it was more to do with the fact that he couldn't work with anybody. He was so extreme in his views on religion and on faith and things like that, that if people didn't agree with him, he couldn't work with them. And because he now had, uh, according to the Constitution, an unlimited amount of power, he could just remove them. So not only did he, if he didn't like you or you you went against him or anything like that, you didn't have a job the next day because he was just going to get rid of you. And this was something that he used to his advantage um, pretty much all the way through the 1650s. One of the greatest ironies in English history is that Oliver Cromwell's ruling of England in the 1500s, 15, sorry, 16, 1600s, 1650s, he was more tyrannical, he was more extreme, he was worse than any royalist we'd ever had. Um, he raised taxes, he put down groups that were against him, and by put down I mean put down with force. Um, he would sack judges or constables or anybody who was in a position of power if they were against him. Because he had this ultimate control, he really abused that. You know, he really went to town on anybody who was against him. You were imprisoned or murdered or taken out or, um, you know, anybody who was in a, a position of power who was against him was quickly dismissed. Um, he split the country into 11 districts, each with, um, a major general that was in charge of each district, uh, in charge of law and order. These were not fun times in England. They were quite dark, quite depressing, um, and, yeah, just generally not very fun. Added to this, because Cromwell had managed to succeed in keeping the peace in England, i.e. no real wars or, or fights that were going on in England, no real rebellions, he started war with Spain in 1655. This went on for five years, up until 1659, and was a very, very expensive war. Now, it did have some military success. It was very successful in essence, uh, 
England took control of islands in the, the West Indies. They took control of Jamaica. They took control of Dunkirk in, on the continent. Um, they were, it was very successful in the sense of fruits and, and labor and things like that. Um, it was a war that we won. Um, but it was extremely expensive. It was a really, really expensive war. And for a country that's just come out of a civil war to then jump straight back into a war like this, the only people who are going to pay for it are your, your normal taxpayers, which meant the taxes were extremely high, which meant people were not happy and people lived in poverty. In 1656, Cromwell had to recall Parliament. Now, if we remember back to the previous episode, or, well, the episode one of the English Civil War, you will remember that King Charles also had to recall Parliament in 1640. Oliver Cromwell was a member of that Parliament in 1640 that was recalled, and now he had to do the same he had to recall parliament because he could not afford the war on his own when he recalls parliament parliament are actually quite nice to him as far as i'm concerned they offer him the position of king again now this time it doesn't take him two weeks he refuses it pretty much on the spot but they do offer him a different constitution and this different constitution gives him the ability to name a successor. So it pretty much, as far as we're concerned with history, you're naming a successor to becoming Lord Protector. You are a king just without the title. He was basically king of England. He just, he was never crowned king of England. He had the same powers he had the same responsibilities he even had the ability to name his son to be the next lord protector in 1658 cromwell yet again dissolved parliament he'd given up they weren't doing what he wanted he was constantly arguing with them and he just went nope i'm doing it on my own again go away get rid of you famously said only god can judge between you and me so when you hear all these rap artists come out with only god can judge me they're actually quoting from a 17th century lord protector oliver cromwell so yeah there's a little bit of history for you that famous quote only god can judge me is oliver cromwell now He's in a position at, in 1658 where he's nearly 60 years old. He is not in good health. He's not in a position of physical strength, mental strength. He is slowly deteriorating. And in that year, he also loses uh, his daughter, which um, anybody who who knows anything or anyone who's got kids will know that is your worst fear worst nightmare um so to say that had a profound effect on his mental status would be under 
underselling it, to be honest. Oliver Cromwell was distraught and it took a massive effect on him. And later that year, um, he actually slipped into a coma um, and died on the 3rd of September, 1658. Not before appointing his son, Richard Cromwell, as the next Lord Protector of England. So, that's the story of Oliver Cromwell. I'm just going to give you a little brief, maybe a couple of minutes, on what happened after Cromwell died and was buried um, at uh, the palace. Now, when he died, like I said, Richard took over as Lord Protector. He was actually only in place for about 20 months. Now, he was not Oliver Cromwell. He was not as charismatic. He was not as um, forceful. He was not as religious. Um, and more importantly, he didn't have the backing of the people like Oliver Cromwell did. He didn't have the backing of the army like Oliver Cromwell did. Cromwell had... Oliver Cromwell, this is, had the advantage with the army in the sense of if there was an issue that generals or someone in the army didn't agree with, Oliver Cromwell could use the fact that he fought alongside these men as sort of reassurance, you know, this band of brothers' unity of saying, look, you can trust me, we fought and died, you know, at the same battles, you know, we fought together we you know our comrades died not your comrades or mine our comrades you know he had the trust of the army whereas Richard Cromwell had none of that he was a young man he'd never fought in any of the wars he didn't have the same reputation that his father did um he was actually called Queen Dick um (laughs) by the people because they really just didn't like him you know he had no power and authority like like his dad did um obviously for those of you who don't who are thinking why are they calling him dick well in england dick is a short name for richard so if you're called richard and you're from america uh in england we could call you dick and that wouldn't be offensive so yeah there we go there's a little side note for you um but yeah he, he wasn't very successful and on the 26th of May 1660, a 30-year-old man landed on the coast of Dover and was invited back as King of England. Uh, that was Prince Charles, who was then crowned Charles II of England. Um, he said that all his quarrels with Parliament would be squashed um, and basically that was the end of that was the end of if England not having a king uh, it wasn't a very long time that we didn't have a king um but yeah we had a a time in our history where one man ruled the country and that that man was Oliver Cromwell and you know he is he's a, a hugely important figure in English history and um yeah very very controversial as well, you know, very, very controversial with 
uh, especially the the rebellions in Ireland and how how he dealt with that. I mean, that, like I said, will always be something that is is looked down upon, um, and and rightly so. But um, yeah, that's the story of of Oliver Cromwell. Now, I am going to apologise for the quality of this sound. Um, like I said, I am off work. My kids are also off school. Um, and I've heard every now and again little things being dropped and shouting and screaming and um, things like that. So if you have heard any of that through this episode, I do apologise. There's nothing I can do about it. Um, but I, I've noticed uh, at one point I, I noticed a chair being dragged across the floor rather than picked up and moved. Um, so I had to pause and edit that out. Um, so just be aware if there are some some noises uh, i am a father of 3 um and my wife is currently at work today while i'm recording so um it's not going to be uh, might not be the best quality for you guys um but i hope it's not affected your listening too much um and we shall see you next week with quite um quite a strange story actually i think you guys will enjoy it i think it's a uh, it's a similar lines to a similar era to what we what we have been talking about um i think you guys will uh, will enjoy it it's a bit more gory and a bit more a bit more strange if you don't know what it is get yourselves over to facebook type in this week in history join the facebook group and you can have a look at the picture and decide what you think next week's episode could be well thank you for listening guys and we shall see you next week just remember In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool, too. With an ice-cold cold brew, and not just any cold brew, but one that's slow-steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. When you love riding a motorcycle, you want to ride it everywhere, even getting a dental checkup. Mr. Carter, wouldn't you prefer the chair? I'm fine on my bike, Doc. Well, let me know if you feel any discomfort. And when you love saving money, you want to save even more. That's why GEICO makes it easy to bundle your motorcycle and car insurance. All done, Mr. Carter. Remember to brush, floss, and lubricate your drive chain regularly. Kickstart your savings with GEICO Motorcycle. Bundle and save on the things you love. Bundling car and renter's insurance with GEICO is so easy, your neighbors are probably already doing it. But who? Look for the signs. Chances are they live in a home and have a car. They use money and enjoy having more of it. They probably drink lots of lemonade. Mmm, lemonade. And they've probably said something suspicious like, I'm bundling with Geico or stop spying on me with those binoculars. If so, you may want to ask them how easy it was to bundle with Geico. Bundling is easy with Geico. Just ask your neighbors. We all have history. Make yours great. Bye-bye. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool, too. With an ice-cold cold brew, and not just any cold brew, but one that's slow-steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply.